sisters. Welcome back to season two of Thriving Thoughts. I'm your host, Dr. Sherry. It is such a privilege to have you back. You guys, I think about all, every single one of you, every single listener that has made this podcast possible, y'all have my heart. Like, you have my sincere thanks. Um, I just really, I'm so grateful. I'm so blown away by the amount of support that this message of thriving in any and every circumstance is getting through this podcast and just the incredible people that I've met in the process. Um, So not a whole lot's going to change except for I have added a feature, a premium add-on feature for you. I'm going to be doing various series. They will be 10-minute or less episodes. Uh, You're going to want to check that out on my thrivingthoughts.podbean.com site, which I will include in the show notes, but they're $1.99 an episode. And the series that is launching today is called Break Up Breakthroughs. Yeah, ladies, you heard me right. Break Up Breakthroughs. I've been going through it and I got so much thriving to share with you. I just can't wait. It's bursting on my heart to share. But um, please do check that out. And before we move on to today's show, I do want to note Take a listen to that awesome music that you're hearing. That is from my dear friend, original music by Derek Kretzer. You can find him at DerekKretzerMusic.com. You can follow him on the gram at Derek Kretzer and on Facebook at Derek Kretzer. So um, thank you, Derek, for that amazing music. So grateful for you. All right, you guys, you are in for a dynamite interview. I was so profoundly encouraged and really informed by this interview with my new friend, Rachel Pye Jones. Rachel lives in Djibouti, Africa. If you don't know where that is, it's the Horn of Africa, and it's right across the Red Sea from Yemen. So she is in the thick of it, y'all. But what I love is that she just opened up my eyes and my mind to how when we walk into and embrace curiosity, how that literally changes the course of our life and it sets everything up in its perfect path for us to be able to accomplish that which we are here to do and for us to be able to have the most fulfillment. So for those of you, this is a perfect timing for this episode. It's January 2020, right? A lot of people have set goals. Maybe you're kind of delayed in that and you haven't really set your goals yet, but I would encourage you, make one of your goals to be curious about everything you see, about every person that you meet and watch how that changes your life. You know what? I'm going to leave the rest to Rachel. Y'all are going to love her just as much as I do. Enjoy my conversation with Rachel Pye Jones. Hey, Rachel, thank you for joining me for another episode of Thriving Thoughts. I am super, super stoked to have somebody that is literally living, sitting in the Horn of Africa right now, doing this podcast show with me. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad to be with you, Sherry. Yeah, this is fantastic. So can you tell, um, remind me and tell the listeners too, like, how did we connect? Because I can't, like, I can't recall off the top of my head. And I, you're like the first person that I know that I'm like having a conversation with that lives in the Horn of Africa. So to me, that's a pretty big deal. So (laughs) how did we come to know each other? I, one of my writing friends, Sarah Ward, did an interview Mm. with you, a podcast interview, a maybe like a month or two months ago, she had written a book, a beautiful book. And so she had such a great time talking that she suggested I reach out and contact you. I'm so glad you did. I'm so glad you did. And I just want like, 
Okay, so tell us. So here I'm on the East Coast of the States. So it's 11 a.m. here. It's two days after Christmas here. Um, what what time is it where you are? What's going on where you are? Like, tell it, give us a picture. Sure. So it's 7 p.m. on Friday. Uh, yeah, two days after Christmas. But for us, uh-huh. Friday is the start of our weekend. So, okay. And we're in a Muslim country. So no one else, well, a lot of other people were not celebrating Christmas, but today was a holiday because it's Friday and Saturday okay. is also the weekend. And so um, we had spent yesterday and today camping out at the beach because wow. we're the country we live in is called Djibouti and it's right on the coast. Okay. So we're about an hour and a half from just this stunning area of snorkeling and um, oh, wow. It's it's a Christmas tradition that the day after Christmas, we go camping at this beach. And also at this time of year, this is one of the best things about living in Djibouti, actually, is um, whale sharks come through the bay where we live. And so whale sharks are the largest shark fish in the ocean, but they don't have teeth. And so they're perfectly safe. No kidding. Wow. And so you just jump out of your boat and you snorkel with them and they're massive. They can, they mat the full grown can be as big as a city bus. The ones here are not that what? big, but they're huge. And so, so you swim with these creatures every Christmas. Yeah. Do you do you have like video of this? This is incredible. Yeah, we, uh, I'm pretty sure my husband has some on our um, on our GoPro. We definitely have photographs. And so that's wow. what we just were doing. We were at the beach today, came back, and Djibouti is um, extremely hot. It's a okay. volcanic. Yeah, what's the weather country. like there now? So today is about 85 and we all thought, oh, it's so cold. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's, yeah, it's very hot. So in the summer it can get as high as 120. Um, And the summer hot season is like April through October. So most of the year. Okay. Okay. Um, Would you consider the winter? Yeah. Yeah. We're above the equator. Um, So the, you know, it's desert country. There's a lot of, um, some areas of volcanic lava rock, which is black, or else there's the brown dust and rocks. And then you go to the mm. beach and you put your face under the water and it's just this brilliant, colorful paradise. Wow. And so it's a very interesting contrast between what we have um, kind of in our day-to-day life of the dust in the desert and then yeah. the beach where we get away for the weekends and the holidays. Yeah. Well, which is it to me, it's incredible because it's like, we want to get away to the beach when it's winter, but like, it's still cold there. And <laughs> you have this beautiful opportunity two days after Christmas to go and see this, like almost like full, you know, to us over here in the States, like full blown summer color, you know, mm-hmm. beauty view you have of the ocean. Now, is it packed? Is it like um, packed with tourists or is it mainly with people who live there? It's there's not very much tourism here. It's um growing in tourism, but it's mainly people who live here. So the beach today was not very packed. I mean, actually to us it felt packed. Uh but mm-hmm. for a Friday there was there was probably about ten families there, ten land cruisers. It's a tough road. And so it takes okay. a lot of work and energy to get there. To get um, there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's definitely worth it. it once we do. Wow. Well, you're going to have to share some pictures with us. I'm following you now on social media, and I know our listeners are going to want to follow you too, so they can see this swimming with the whales and this beautiful, you know, ocean beach that you're talking about. Now, tell us a little bit about the difference between Friday and Saturday there and Saturday and Sunday here, considered the weekend. Yeah. So our work week starts on Sunday. 
Um, my okay. husband and I run a school, and so we are at work on Sunday morning, and then the work week ends on Thursday. So Friday is the Muslim day of rest. It would be compared to a Christian Sunday or a Jewish Saturday Sabbath. Um, okay. So Friday is the day that people are most likely to go to the mosque for prayers and things like that. And then Saturday is just continuing the weekend. Like a, it's kind of the same as a Saturday in the U.S., I guess. Got it. Um, got it. So it's like yeah. reverse. It would be like yeah. Sunday, Saturday here. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So how long have you been in Djibouti? We've been in Djibouti since 2004, and we've been in the Horn of Africa since 2003. So in 2003, okay. we moved to Somaliland, Somalia, ah, um, uh -huh. which borders Djibouti. And then that was January 2003. And then in January 2004, we moved to Djibouti. So what in the world, what literally, what in the world <laughs> took you to the other side of the world? Like, tell us about that. Yeah, my family is, well, my husband and I are originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. And we, in 2000, 1999 and 2000, we were living in a high-rise apartment complex in downtown Minneapolis. And mm -hmm. Minneapolis has one of the largest populations of Somalis in the United States. And so really? a lot of, yeah, it's a very but large, very active. I, there's several reasons, but I main one I think is that Minneapolis, Minnesota has really great refugee welcoming services. Um, Got it. Oh, wow. And, Good to know. Yeah, okay. And, yeah. And once often you can tell where there's a crisis in the world by which new large population of refugees have moved to Minneapolis. So ah. at that time, by so the way, was 90s, there an influx then at that time? Yeah, there was a huge influx. Yeah. Because the civil okay. war in Somalia had started in 91 mm -hmm. and then people were going to refugee camps and then getting, um, uh, settled in Minneapolis. And once they would settle in Minneapolis, they would tell their families, come join us here. So even though it's very oh. different, you know, with snow and colds and all these sure. things from Somalia, there was a huge draw because of the community sense and family. Yeah. Sense. yeah. So we were in this high rise complex, um, because we were college students. It was right near the university of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Uh, the rent was low. <laughs> we were college yeah. students and newly married and all of our neighbors were Somalis. And so we just started to get to know them. My husband was in, at that time, getting a master's in engineering, but wanted to be a teacher. He wanted to teach engineering wow. or sciences or math. We were interested in going somewhere outside of our comfort zone. We had both grown up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We had gone to the University of Minnesota, and we had a strong Christian faith and just felt this um, compelling desire to be yeah. pushed and stretched outside of what we knew and were familiar with um, and to be able to hopefully do something useful in the name of yeah. Jesus. And so yeah. our Somali friends uh, just, they told us about this Northern region of Somalia, which is called Somaliland. It's kind of a breakaway Republic, which is peaceful, not like the okay. South. And there was at that time, the only functioning university in Somalia was in that Northern region. Okay. And they were looking for native English speaking teachers of math and science, which was my hmm. husband. And so um, we thought, oh, this is about as far outside of our comfort zone as we can get. So yeah. let's, let's try. Now, it. you guys didn't have any kids yet. <laughs> we did. did we had, yep. Um, when we moved, we had our twins were two and a half. Oh, my goodness. I cannot <laughs> imagine. You're, so this is hilarious to me because you're talking about being pushed outside of your comfort zone. And I'm like picturing young mom. I mean, like having 
twin two and a half year olds, isn't that like enough pushing out of your comfort zone? <laughs> I think we've just figured like we have no money. We've got these two little kids. Right. We don't have any idea what we're doing. What do we have to lose? Exactly. Like if anything yeah. good happens, it will any anything good that we could accomplish will not be because of us, you know? Right. Um, right. In our weak state. And um yeah. and also we had this great welcome from Somalis that we knew. Um they knew that we were Christians and they said, you know, that's, you're welcome to practice your own personal faith here. Wow. And so, um, and they just wanted that input and development into their university. And so with yeah. that, I mean, we wouldn't have gone if we didn't have that kind of invitation. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel well, like. You know, and I think something that's really cool about that. So like if, if, if I'm like an outsider, just, you know, I am an outsider hearing this story, hearing your story for the first time. I could, I could easily chalk it up to, it was just sheer like coincidence of location of mm -hmm. where you were. Like that's, that's what got you to where you are is because you were in Minneapolis. There was an influx of Somalis and you, you know, that it was just pure chance. But I think what I see layered on top of that is not just the location, but you saw an opportunity. You saw an opportunity to become invested in a community of people with which, with whom you were unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And so you had an openness to that. And then on top of that, you not only had a willingness, but you had a desire <laughs> to be pushed outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's beautiful. And so that was equally matched by both you and your husband. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were definitely a team. You don't go to a place like that with two-year-old twins sure. if you're not on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess some people would, but you guys didn't. And I'm glad yeah. to hear that. So then yeah. you left Somaliland a year later and then you went to Djibouti. Yeah. Well, actually in, so we moved there about January. In October of that year, 2003, there was a murder in our small village where the university was, where we were teaching of another, oh, there was only about eight foreigners living there at the time. And one of them was assassinated. And actually she's the one I wrote a book about. Um, the, she, oh, so yes. her, so she You're was going to tell us about that momentarily. Yeah, sure. Um, she was killed in October. And then two weeks later, but well, 10 days later, a British couple who were teachers were also killed. And at that point it just, it felt very dangerous because we were, yeah, there just weren't very many people like us there. We stick out, um, and so our organization ordered us, and actually every other foreigner in the country at the time was ordered to leave. And so we ended up fleeing. Um, we had thirty minutes to pack a suitcase and ran to the airport, and then flew to Ethiopia, and then eventually to Kenya, where we stayed until. So now you've got twin three-year-olds essentially that you're fleeing with. Right, right. And oh, here's something really beautiful. And I wonder if you can touch on this for a minute, because what I'm hearing is, so you came into first contact with, and I don't know why this is making me tear up a little bit, but you came into first contact with people who were fleeing their home mm -hmm. in fear, right? In fear for their safety. Mm -hmm. And you go to serve a people like this, and now you end up being one of those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it was a powerful experience, and I, I, on the one hand, I felt like this really helps me understand at the at a very small level what Somalis experienced in fleeing and what refugees experienced, right. and yet in no way was my experience comparable to theirs because we had sure. 
you know, I did not lose my country. I did right. not lose my history. And I, I still had a place to go back to. I still had a job. I still had, it was just very, very different. So I, on one hand, I felt that fear and I felt the grief of losing a home that we had established and kind of a sure. dream that we had we yeah. dreamed of being a part of this. But, but what I think it helped me appreciate what I didn't know about a refugee experience, if that makes sense. Okay. Like it's easy to look and think, oh, they lost their home and now they have to start over. It's so right. much more than that. So, so much, much more. more. Can you touch on the so much more? Yeah. Like when you, for Somalis who have left Somalia, most of them will probably never go back. So they have, you know, heritage and family members who are buried back in Somalia. They have memories. They have um, just all this culture that they love yeah. and are and and probably Home. can never have again. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. yeah, they set up a new life and they have really done well in Minneapolis in particular in establishing themselves and as part of the community in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a level of grief and trauma that is, generational and that I've heard some mm-hmm. Somali friends talk about more and more um, in terms of what their mothers saw as they were fleeing or what they experienced mm-hmm. as they fled. And, mm-hmm. you know, kids who are four or five years old who are watching family members get shot and running. Mm-hmm. And then now they're trying to establish a life again in Minneapolis. Like it is, there's so much that happens in that process. They go all that they see, then they go to a camp and what happens in the camp? It's not, it's not great. And then they go someplace brand new where they don't speak the language. They don't maybe have connections. It's hard. And so, so I, I wonder, um, Rachel, if you can help us with something, because I mean, we're in a, I mean, I don't really think it's any different from any other time. I just think we're more aware of it, you know, being in a politically charged atmosphere, um, here in the States in particular with an election coming up next year and um, people having various opinions, especially about immigration and things like that. And I wonder if you could just answer a question for us. Um, Do we, is there something that we can do as people who are unable to access the experience or the community that you have access to other than maybe listening to a podcast episode like this, um, is there something that we can do to keep ourselves informed to better understand, you know, what our, not even to better understand what our position is, but just to better understand the dynamics of the issue of Mm -hmm. refugees and fleeing and that kind of thing. How can we take better care in telling ourselves the truth of that type of thing? I think a, a high top recommendation that I would give is to read or listen to refugees themselves, immigrants, mm. not just me telling my story or my perception of their story, yeah. but, but theirs. There's a great book by a, a Somali American immigrant called Call Me American. Okay. Um, it's just really well written. He was actually featured on NPR and on some different oh. podcast stories. And um, great. Abdi Ifti Noor is the author's name. And his story, you know, he tells the story of what it's like to be a Somali refugee and come to America mm-hmm. or, um, you know, to not listen even to the news perspective on the refugee experience, but go straight to the refugee story. Right. Right. So how do we access those? Maybe through the book that you recommended? Is there another way to access that type of thing? I cannot think off the top of my head of a resource. I'm sure there is. That's okay. my go-to okay. one is with Somalis. I'm familiar with Somali stories. Sure. So I could give you But I love that. 
Yeah. Like take it from the perspective of the person who experienced it, because I think a lot of times, and this is what we do. Um, I, w- I was just talking with another woman on a different podcast. This is completely different, uh, separate from um, issues of refugees and fleeing your country and things like that. But talking about how um, it was Lindsay Morgell, it was on her episode, and she was talking about how she used to be a woman that would take other people's opinions of another person and make that her own instead of doing her own investigative research. And I think what you're talking about here is just, you know, spilling truth on that, saying, no, the lie is to listen to or get your information from uh, second or third hand sources. So Mm -hmm. the truth would be get your information from the people that have experienced it. And then you can form. I mean, I'm not even talking about forming an opinion. I just mean like be informed. Mm-hmm. but be informed by the right resources. So thanks for sharing that. I'm, we're actually going to include the link to that book in the show notes, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, great. So I'm sorry, back to, back to you and, and your ex- you were touching on your experiences of what you lose, even though that you didn't have a, the, the same exact experience mm-hmm. as a Somali refugee, but you had some similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'll, not just that refugee or fleeing kind of experience, but being a foreigner kind of experience has mm-hmm. made me really appreciate the welcome that we've received from yeah. our Jerusalem and Somali community. And so again, when I, to compare it to maybe an American experience of um, when we welcome the outsider, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a language barrier or a culture barrier or just an awkward sure. barrier. Um, but it is so appreciated by that mm-hmm. foreigner. I know that I, I speak Somali. I speak French. I, I've tried to really have a deep understanding of culture and history and all these things, but I am still an outsider. So I know that it's hard to be friends with me. It takes people an extra effort to be patient, to explain things you wouldn't have to explain to someone else. And the people who have loved me well and welcomed me well, or my husband or my kids, I have, I am just so immensely grateful to them. Mm. And so that, I think when we turn that around and be the one who welcomes the outsider, yeah. it just forms this great bond and an opportunity to have a deep relationship that that's pretty powerful. You know, what a beautiful truth. I think just, just taking from your situation and taking from your experience and the truths that you're sharing with us that there's, there's two sides to that coin. One being the recipient of being invited in and two being the inviter, inviting somebody in. I think all of us, um, have the opportunity to do that in our daily lives to say, I'm not going to remain inside this little circle of mine that I'm going to open my arms and my heart to somebody who may be different from me to somebody who might require a substantial portion of effort and uh, patience on my part, right. To be able to welcome them. in. I think that's, that's beautiful. Is there a recommendation that you could give us for those of us who aren't necessarily welcoming in somebody from a foreign culture, but mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about culture, you're talking about people who are outside of your social class. You're talking about people who are outside mm-hmm. of your ethnic class. You're talking about people who are outside of your comfort zone. Like I've never lived like that. Like how do I, what's a practical tool that we could take away from exercising that patience or that effort? I think giving people the benefit of the doubt, like, mm. When we see someone that looks a little different at the grocery store or at a restaurant and they're maybe behaving in a strange way to just think what maybe what has happened to them in their day? Have they had a bad day? Maybe they've had some stressful experience. Maybe they're going through an illness. Maybe someone in their family is struggling. If they're a different culture, just to 
imagine or to <laughs> tell yourself, I don't know what that is like. That's right. And to, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to think positive first. Right. I think so many times we go negative. We go to fear. We go to judgment. Yep. Because we don't feel angry. comfortable. Right. Yeah. Right. And so just to think, what is this person going through? And, um, you know, there's been days where I have so much culture exhaustion or mm. just stress or thing. I go to the grocery store in my pajamas and I, and I just hope that other people will think, you know what, maybe she's having just a stressful day right, instead, of, right. instead of really judging me, you know? So I just, yeah. I want to turn that back on other people. So that's what I would recommend. I love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I had a friend who said, um, she said one of her comments that she always tells herself is when she sees somebody that she doesn't understand or she sees the situation, she, she's, she says to herself, I don't know how they live. Like, mm-hmm. who am I to decide how they should or shouldn't be living? I don't know how they live. I don't know what their life is like. And then that just gives you an attitude of, I think, uh, curiosity that allows you to have that openness that you know, going back to the very beginning of you and your husband having that openness to explore a different community and a different culture. So yeah, absolutely. Curiosity over judgment. Oh yeah. So I love that. That's a great truth. I'm, I'm just writing that down by the way, curiosity (laughs) over judgment. Um, so let me ask you this. You said you and your husband have a school. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your school. Is it through an organization? Oh, this is the other thing I wanted to ask you backing up. I'm like, wait a second. So these, this young married couple with Two twin toddlers takes off. Like, did you guys do that independently? Did you do it through an organization? Because here's why I'm asking, right? Because they say, you know, don't try this at home, folks. Well, (laughs) maybe, maybe there's some people at home listening, right? Maybe there's some women and they have this pool on their heart, or maybe them and their husband have had a pool to be able to go do something and be able to go serve in a unique, in a unique way. So maybe you could tell us, like, how did you do that? Did you do that on your own or did you do that with the help of an organization? Yeah, we're with an organization called Resource Exchange International. Okay. And they are, it's also who we are registered with here. It's an NGO. So an American yep. 501c3 organization that provides teachers, doctors, midwives. Um, those are the three main things in small business development around the world. So okay. we have staff in Indonesia, in the Middle East, in Cuba, different places, in Egypt, here, Vietnam. Um so they are the ones that have been our support network, our trainers, okay. our connection to the U.S. Um, yeah. So they that, get, they've given you a lot of like the logistical resources. Yeah, as much as they can. Yeah, we've had to build. Yeah. We're the first family here in this region, and so we've had to really start from scratch wow. with a lot of things. But we're kind You're of the a, first family <laughs> in Djibouti. Yeah, my husband is a he's a starter, an initiator of things, and so he just goes okay. For stuff. Yeah. Beautiful. Love it. Oh, can't wait for you to tell us more. So go ahead. Tell us about the school. So well, he taught at the University of Djibouti. So we were invited to come here by Somali friends again from our evacuation from Somaliland. So they invited us mm-hmm. to come here and said, come teach at this university. Um, here he was teaching English because the language of education is French. Okay. And um, we had to learn French eventually, but he still was teaching English. And then eventually he finished his PhD in education and um, was developing programs at the university and had really gotten the English department up to a level where Jibushans themselves were able to take over the positions that he had been filling, mm-hmm. which is awesome. That's what we wanted. Um, and so wow. at that point, he kind of realized that he needed to move out of the university so that they could really take it and build it on their own. 
Okay. And at the same time as that was kind of happening, he just finished his PhD. And then the government here had identified English language as one of their primary needs for development because they're wow. the only French speaking country in kind of a region of English speaking. And yeah. so, yeah. so as they pointed that or pointed that out as a significant need, he was contacted by connections just through his work at the university of people saying, we would like for you to start an English language school for preschool through high school. And oh my this, goodness. this had actually been for most of his adult life, a dream that he had of being able to start his own school. And so mm. we felt like when the government in your host country, who's welcomed you asks you to do what you've always wanted to do, you do yeah. it. Yeah. And so in 2000, I was 2015 or six, 2016, we opened doors on the school. It's called the international school of Djibouti. And, um, the first year we had six students to start with, and this mm -hmm. year we have over 50. So in four years, you have nearly increased that by a thousand percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. It's wow. Been a, it's been a ride. So he's the director. He teaches sometimes if he needs to, and I am the um, librarian, school nurse, secretary, parent liaison community planner, okay. all that, all that kind of stuff. Everything, <laughs> all of them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Everything now, but teach because I'm not a teacher. Everything but teach. And yeah. so let me ask you this because I know you said this was a dream of your husband's to start a school. How did this tap into your dreams? <laughs> Good question. Um, <laughs> I love watching him thrive and build stuff mm -hmm. and do what he loves. And he's good at it. Mm -hmm. He's really good at this. Um, he's, but I had never really wanted, I never thought about being part of a school. So that was not mm -hmm. something that I had dreamed about. Um, up until, so for the long time of our early years here, I was very focused on raising our kids. We had a third child. She was born here. Um, okay. And then I was helping with new staff that were coming, doing training, things like that. So I wasn't really involved in a work position, but when mm -hmm. he started the school, we realized like we knew this had to be all in as a family because it just would take sure. so much to start something. Sure. But at the same time, I was really starting to develop my writing career and work. And so yeah. I've had to balance that, like really supporting his dream and loving what he's doing, watching him thrive, mm -hmm. which brings me mm -hmm. a lot of joy. At the same sure. time, balancing that with what brings me a lot of joy myself, mm -hmm. apart from mm -hmm. his work, which is the writing. Um, yes. So it's been a balance. And you've embraced and that. Yeah. Well, okay. But I, all right. I got to say this. There's a lot of women, Rachel, that I know, including myself, who have not, who have a desire to write who have that burning desire, who steal away and, as hope writers would say, write in the cracks mm -hmm. of time as opposed to the chunks of time, right? And we have that burning desire and we have the ability, we have the time or, you know, we have whatever, but we haven't done it. And here's something really cool that you have taken. You know, what What I say is I, I want to talk to other women who can inspire me that believe in thriving in any and every circumstance. And that's exactly what you're talking about here. You're talking about thriving in a place where one, you can thrive because you love to see your husband thrive. And that's just a beautiful thing in and of itself to, for that to bring you joy. But two, not putting 
what makes you thrive on hold. And three, taking your situation, I mean, you're going to tell us about this this book about this woman who was killed that you've written, right? But mm-hmm. three, like literally thriving in any and every circumstance by taking the circumstances that you're in and using that to funnel your what makes you thrive, which is your writing. Mm-hmm. So that's just beautiful. So I have another question, but before we get there, I want you to tell us about your writing. Tell us what you've been writing. Um, yeah, just tell us about it and, and why it's passion for you and why you've got to do it. Yeah. Well, I just love stories. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. I've always loved stories. I think stories reveal so much about a person, about a place, about a culture. And when I came to the Horn of Africa, one of the first things I did when we made the decision to move here, I went straight to the library in Minneapolis, took out every book I could find by and about Somalis, about Somalia, just to learn their stories, to learn Mm -hmm. the the legends Mm -hmm. that they tell each other, the myths that they have, the history, the, the modern day memoirs, all those kinds of things. Um, because I feel like it just reveals so much about a, it, it even helps me know what to ask. If I, mm-hmm. as I learn culture, the more I know, the more I know to ask. Sure. Um, yep. And so and then I came here and I saw a Somalia that was not the story that I was hearing from Westerners. The story of Somalia that Westerners tell is pirates, famine, right. you know, fundamentalism, terrorism, all these things. And I right. saw this culture of welcome. Yes, there were, there was violence. We had to leave. Sure. There was it wasn't perfect. There's problems, but I also mm-hmm. saw beauty and hospitality mm-hmm. and generosity mm-hmm. and family. And so you saw the old stories. Yeah. And so I just thought I, I love to get to these real daily stories and be able to share those and then incorporating uh, my own experience because I'm not Somali. So like to yeah. pretend like I could tell the Somali story is arrogant sure. and naive, but I can tell mm-hmm. my experience of being yes. a foreigner here. Yes. And mm-hmm. so I just, I just love doing that. I love um, being able to interview someone and then kind of incorporate what they've taught me about like a Somali recipe and then incorporate my own experience or interaction with that food product into the story. I feel like that makes it authentic. It helps a a Westerner be able to connect with it in some way. Um, And so I mentioned my youngest daughter was born here. She was born on 9-11-2005. So not the 9-11. But that birth, she was born to this American Christian family I had a Somali Muslim midwife. So the first person to catch her and kind of bring her oh. into living space was this Somali Muslim woman on 9-11. And it just oh, felt my like goodness. a really powerful, beautiful experience. And I got to wow. write about that for the New York Times. And so that wow. that kind of launched my my writing and my understanding, like there's something unique here that I'm experiencing that can bridge all these gaps, all these yes. cultures. Um so and that's such a needed voice. Mm. Now, let, let me ask you a question. People, okay, so writers dream. Okay, this is so funny to me. Writers dream of writing for the New York Times. And you're like, oh, yeah, I wrote for the New York Times, and that's what launched this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so reverse. So tell it us is. how that happened. I feel like it was a total fluke. I mean, I just, yeah. I don't know what, how it happened. I was writing before that. I had a blog. I'd written, okay. I'd published a few other pieces for a running magazine again, okay. because they were looking for the experience of a slow foreign person running in Africa, not, okay. not the Olympic <laughs> winners, you know, not the gold medalist. Right, right. Um, so I had this unique niche. Um, sure. And I just one day sat down and wrote this story of my daughter being born and I Googled who takes personal essays. <laughs> okay. 
Awesome. Modern Love New York Times came up and I just sent it. I don't know why. I just sent it. Um, and wow. it got accepted, which just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And so because of that, then I got other connections and started writing for more places. Yeah. Um, and well, you know, it, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I was just saying, I think that you're sharing, you're sharing something that really, um, speaks to a lie that many of us women tell ourselves that things in our environment, things, um, in our lives, you know, we're always waiting on when this changes, then, then I'll be in a position to do this. Um, you know, if, if I make more money or if I do this different job or if I relocate to here, or as soon as the kids graduate from high school or, you know, whatever it is, as soon as this happens, then I can do this. Then I can pursue my dream. And what I love is going back to the beginning of your story, Rachel, you did not you were never, you never, you never embraced that lie. Mm -hmm. You said, you know what? I don't know where this is taking me and this might be crazy, but I'm launching over to Somalia with my two toddlers and my husband, because we have a <laughs> dream to go do something and we don't know what it's going to look like, but we're going to go do it. We're going to use what was given to us now. You didn't mm -hmm. say, oh, I need to not be in this, um, area where there's an influx of Somali refugees in order to live my dream. You said, no, oh, wait, I have an opportunity here. So I think the beautiful truth is that I took just from what you just shared with us is <clears throat> speaking of stories to look at your own, to look at the setting mm -hmm. of your story right now and being able to use that setting to dive in and, and match your gifts to your current setting as opposed to waiting for your setting to change. Amen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, love that. <laughs> you said it very well. Oh, thank you. So tell us about your books before yeah. I, because I can, I get, I'm, I'm so excited. I just want to have you on for part two because I have so many more <laughs> questions, but go ahead. Tell us about your books. Sure. So I, I self-published three books. One was a cookbook called Djiboutilicious. I um, love that. Djibouti-licious. One was a welcome guidebook to Djibouti. It's for tourists and for foreigners who are moving here. So that and what's that one called? Welcome to Djibouti. Arrive, okay. survive, and thrive in the hottest country on earth. Oh, wow. And so that's, um, I update that every year. And okay. then the third one is called Finding Home, Third Culture Kids in the World. And it's a series of essays that other women have written, not just women, men and women, mostly women have written um, okay about being or raising or loving a third culture kid, which is a kid who has spent a significant portion of their childhood years outside their parents' passport country. Got it. Um, so my kids are third culture kids. Yeah. yeah. Uh, immigrant, refugee kids, they're third culture kids. So it's um, other essays women yep. wrote okay. and I compiled. And I had then, never heard that term before. I love that. Third culture kids. Okay. Yeah. That's a really significant term for expats and foreigners to, yeah. you know, uh, and then in October, I published my first traditionally published book. It was with Plow Publishing, and okay. it's called Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa. And that <sighs> is the biography of this woman, Annalena Tonelli, who was murdered in Somaliland in 2003. And so it was a huge honor, privilege, and, and I felt a lot of pressure, yeah. but good pressure to tell her story. It's the first time yeah. it's been really told in English. Um Wow. Yeah. So, so how did you, I mean, how does, like, did you, were there a lot of things that you had to do to get permission to tell her story or how does that work? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I started partly, it's my story. 
because I was there when she was killed, but that's it. I never met her, but our lives had some things in common. You know, we both moved yeah. to the heart of Africa with the idea of doing something helpful. Yeah. Uh, we both had faith. She came from a Catholic background. She's Italian. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like really challenged by her story and I wanted to understand how she did what she did. So she had moved to Kenya to work with Somalis in 1969. And she mm -hmm. ended up eventually working with Somali nomads who had tuberculosis. And she okay. developed what became the global treatment system for TB, mm. especially among nomads. Like she kind of helped. Wow. She, was, she came along just as this was becoming developed and she proved okay. that it would actually work in this okay. kind of population. And so over the course of the next 33, 34 years in the Horn of Africa, she worked in Somalia during the war. She worked in the North in Somaliland where we were always focused on tuberculosis, but eventually working with patients who had HIV AIDS. Um, okay. She developed deaf schools. She developed wow. um, a program to fight against female genital mutilation in partnership with Somali partners. She always had local people mm -hmm. that were integrated with her. And then in 2003, somebody assassinated her. And so um, mm. I, I didn't know all of that backstory of what she had accomplished, all these incredible sure. things she had done during the war. She had rescued people from genocides. She'd been taken hostage. I mean, she just had this incredible wow. story. And when we had to flee Somaliland, all I knew was that she had worked with tuberculosis and somebody killed her. Mm. But after I started writing more, my kids got a little bit older, I was able to just start wondering and thinking and another um american who had lived in the village at the same time as us was hired by the unhcr to produce a documentary about her life so as he produced okay. his documentary he said rachel this woman's life is so much richer and deeper than we thought you should write more we were hoping you know just a book or a movie or something else to mm -hmm. share her story mm -hmm. and so i just plunged in and once i plunged into the story i, wow. I couldn't get out she was so compelling but um her family didn't want to talk about it. So I yeah. came up against this big wall of her family not wanting to share her story. So that was a big part of, you asked about permission. This is a long mm. story to get yeah. to permission. But yeah. um, I did feel like I needed her family on board. I really yeah. wanted their okay, because they had access to letters and people. And several people I interviewed said, we would love to talk to you, but we won't unless her family approves. And so okay. to get those people all mostly Somalis in the Horn region here to agree I needed that. So yeah. over the course of about a year, actually several emails between both myself and this documentary producer, mm -hmm. emailing the family, kind of massaging the relationship. Yeah. Saying, you know, we really would love to do this. This is our perspective. We lived there, sure. these things. And I just kept saying no. And so at one point we decided, he and I decided we just need to go there. We just need to go to Italy and show up and see if they'll talk to us. <laughs> and so we did. Wow. Uh, emailed ahead of time and said, I'll be at the train station in your town on this day at this time. And if I would love to talk to you, could you pick me up? And sure enough, there they were with a welcome sign. And now you had no confirmation of that before you went. No. <laughs> <laughs> talk about a beautiful step of faith. Wow. <laughs> And it ended up being incredible. I spent, I think it was, it was 10 days or two weeks in Italy. And once they, and after the first day, they said, yes, we want you to tell the story. And so after that first day, every other person that I reached out to in Italy, and then they started connecting me to people in Italy. I just went all over on my trains, getting here, getting here, trying to get people to talk. And they were all 
okay with it at that point. So it was really incredible and such a privilege, such an honor. Wow. And certainly sounds like God's hand was just in like orchestrating all of that to make it a possibility. Wow. So, okay, here's, this is something else I want to bring up because I think, um, man, I, you know, I have worked with so many women, Rachel, and talked to so many women that feel so, um, trapped and so, um, just unable to live out their dreams and get very stuck and very, very stuck in and discouraged by the, the waiting period, the waiting room. Right. And, um, so I'm, I'm looking at this from your perspective and I have run into just in the last two days, I've run into three other stories of significant, incredible waiting that was not waiting because it was doing in the waiting. It was exercising faith by, by looking at your setting, figuring out what you can do in that setting and going with it. But just hearing you talk about this, when you guys moved from Minneapolis, Minnesota, did you have any idea that in 12, 13 years, your husband's dream of starting a school and your dream of writing and publishing books would be like, did you know that's what you were leaving to pursue? Absolutely not. (laughs) I thought I was giving it up. Right. You thought you were giving it up. And so what I see in that is tremendous grit. And, And I don't mean that to say like grit of your own accord, but I see that as tremendous. I'll use another word for that. Tremendous obedience to the obligation that you have when you realize that you have an opportunity to serve and you realize that you have a a calling to serve in whatever capacity that is. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to leave your homeland to go to a a foreign country to do that. Mm -hmm. But you took what was in front of you and you said, okay, here's my opportunity. This is where I'm going to go serve. That, that whole time that you're serving, you're still being fulfilled. You're still engaging. You're still using your gifts. But that whole time was like, it was like the preparation and the meeting, the waiting room. Mm -hmm. For, for your dreams, for, for God to be able to put everything in its special, unique place for your dreams to, it was, it's almost like that was your birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) An incubator. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we, um, when we had to evacuate from Somaliland, I remember we were in Ethiopia in a guest house and I just was weeping, just thinking what just happened to our life. We worked so hard to get to this crazy place. And so quickly it was turned over. And I just felt like this makes no sense. What is the plan here? What is the plan here? And I didn't know. And then in 2013, 14, when my husband was working on his PhD, he went back to Somaliland to do the research. And he was researching universities in that region, some of their education development programs. Mm -hmm. And when he went back 10 years later, a decade later, he showed up at the same university where we'd fled the village where we lived and people said, you're back. And he said, I never left. And now he spoke Somali and now he knew yeah. all this culture and they just, and, and we just looked back and we realized like that was for something. <laughs> I, right. you know, and just those connections. And, and then I, all those tears that I had cried in the, of what's the plan here. Yeah. And now I can look back and say, at least I see part of it. I'm sure there's even more that I can't see that's right. happening, you know, and that, that did happen. 
But to be able to look back and think 10 years later, to be able to say, we're still here. We're still working on this thing with you. We're with you. Yeah. That was, that really was powerful lesson to me about that waiting incubating period. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. What is the plan? There's a plan, even if we don't see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful stuff. Now we haven't even gotten to, and unfortunately we don't have time to, but I, because I am like so curious about what it's like to uh, live in a country um, where people are actually can be at war or murdered for their faith. Mm -hmm. um, and so I definitely want to, I want to connect with you on a personal level about that to learn more for sure. We don't have time for it on the show today, but, sure. um, and I know our listeners would be intrigued about that too. So maybe we'll have to have you, um, back maybe for season three. Um, <laughs> but before, before we leave two things, one, um, how can the women listening get a copy of your books? How can we find you? Where do we go? The easiest place to find me is djiboutijones.com. That's my okay. website. Djibouti starts with a D. And so it'll be, I'm sure in the show notes, how to spell it. Djibouti yep. Jones. And then um, my books are all on there through links, but they're also available through indie bookstores, through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Okay. Um, yeah. And if Perfect. anyone's in the Minneapolis area, I will be there in January and February doing some book events. So look them up. I'll have it posted nice. on my website. Nice. Okay, great. Oh, man, I want to fly out and give you a hug. Um, <laughs> I went to Minneapolis. Uh, this is totally like totally off track, Rachel, but I went to Minneapolis several years ago for a conference. And um, I went to there's a building, I think it was like the oldest, tallest building in Minneapolis. It's no longer the tallest. Um, Fauché. What's that? Is the Fauché building? Yes, yes. Okay. And I had my first ever panic attack on the roof. Oh, no. Yeah, I did. First ever. I did. I had no idea. I went out there and I like looked over <gasps> and all of a sudden I, it, it just hit me and girl, I hit the floor. <gasps> I hit the, I hit the floor of that observation deck and I had to literally like crawl back into the like wow. elevator shaft. Yeah. It was pretty oh, terrifying. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> That's my memory of Minneapolis. So I need to make a better one by coming to visit you and give you a Yeah, hug. yeah, you do. <laughs> so, hey, Rachel, one thing that I ask every guest, because this show is talking about how to have thriving thoughts and speaking truth over the lies in our minds, which we've talked a little bit about today. But I always ask every guest, what is one truth that you would want the women, women listening to remember? If they remember nothing else, what would that be? Especially this week, we're talking two days after Christmas. The mm -hmm. word that is just in the forefront of my mind is Emmanuel. Mm. God mm. with us. That is like, there's nothing else that sustains me, that has sustained me through all kinds of loss and grief and fear and joy and delight and celebration. I just always come back to God is with us. He's with me yes. wherever I go. He's with my kids wherever I send them. Now they're yeah. graduated and off in university and yeah. in the scary country of the United States. Yeah, right. And, and God is with them. And God's with me and he's with my Somali friends. And I, it is yeah. just, that is. I love that. Foundational. And make that, yeah, make that your own. God is with me. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Man, that's confirmation for me too, Rachel. Thank you for that beautiful truth. Sometimes it's easy to believe the lie that we've, we're all alone and mm -hmm. nothing could be further from the truth. So thank you for that. Well, Rachel, I have been so encouraged and I'm just, um, I'm really motivated. I'm really motivated and inspired 
uh, to continue living in that thriving place and to continue looking around at my setting and surroundings and say, how can I be of use and how can I thrive right here wherever I am? So thank you for encouraging me with that and inspiring me with that. I'm very grateful. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you for coming on the show, my friend, and you go and have a wonderful evening in Djibouti. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I, I was talking right. with my hands, and so they were flying all over the place. <laughs> I know. I love it. I love that I got to see you. All right, my friend. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, sisters. Isn't Rachel phenomenal? I mean, you all know I'm going to have her back for season three, right? What a delight. What a treasure trove of information. Um, I just feel so inspired and transformed after that conversation, and I know that you did too. Um, hey, listen. Don't forget. Check out the premium add-on podcast episodes that I've added at thrivingthoughts.podbean.com. You are definitely going to be blessed. Share with a friend who maybe has gone through a breakup. Doesn't matter how long ago. I know that they will be encouraged by the insights that I have to share into how I have thrived through a significant breakup. Hey, I have one more favor to ask you. Oh, two more favors, actually. Be sure to connect with Rachel Jones at her website, djiboutijones.com. It's in the show notes, so no need to worry about how to spell it. Click on it. Give her a support. Check out her books. Um, check out her blog. She's written some really beautiful articles that I've had the privilege of reading, and I'm just so grateful for her. So reach out, connect, and learn more about being curious. One more thing. Y'all know that this message of truth, of thriving in any ever in any and every circumstance only gets to people the more that you rate this podcast. So listen, for you Apple Podcast listeners, will you please help me reach my goal of 1,000 five-star ratings, 1,000 five-star ratings by March 1st. Y'all, we've got like seven weeks to do it. 1,000 five-star ratings. Share with a friend. All you've got to do is go to the show in the Apple Podcast, scroll down to the bottom of the show after all of the episodes and click the fifth star. It's as simple as that. Hey, listen, thanks again for your listening ears, for your desire to hear the remarkable women that I have on the show. And please remember, as always, speak truth over the little lies in your mind so that you too can thrive in 